Hello and welcome to Find the Outside the Podcast. We're back again in your ears and we've got Zaid Hassan back again. Coming in. Good to have you with us again, Zaid. As many of you know, Zaid is a, a, a change maker and a, a, a leader in his own right, but he's also an author um, and he's releasing a new book, How to Evolve Using Evolution to Fix Culture, Politics, Economics and Stop the World from Frying and Why It's Not Hard. I feel like awesome. Thank goodness somebody's written that book. I'm excited to figure it out. Zaid, is there anything else you would like to say by way of introduction uh, coming into the pod for the second time, just to bring yourself in, mate? Uh, well, good to be here. No, nothing in particular. I think it'll it'll probably emerge in the conversation. So, well, I so obviously, I mean, I love this title. I love that evolve is in the title, but I can't help but ask you, Zaid, this title evolve. How there is so much happening in the world right now. To- so much happening in the title, right? And, and, you know, I feel like, you know, you, you, uh, you, uh, set yourself up a little bit, how to fix, right. How to fix culture, politics, economics, and stop the world from frying. Um, I'd love you to say a little bit more about that. Cause just, I don't ask you why, because right before we started recording, we were talking about the arrogance of the white man that Tim was mm-hmm. evidencing and, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> brutal. Brutal. <laughs> I think our listeners know I like to tease you, Tim. And so I'm curious, like, what is the, that title not only feels hopeful, but it feels confident. And I'd like to hear more about that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I think we should revisit the the, the arrogance point uh, in a bit. But what I would say is that um, there's a feeling that I have anyway that people look at what's happening around us and essentially say it's game over it's hopeless uh-huh. there's nothing we can do uh-huh. um and there is a narrative i feel sort of in the air around um things are just too far gone for us to do anything about and so in some ways what i'm trying to do is um a point to uh, it's an antidote to that to some extent um and and really um you know if i were to uh, summarize what the point is. The point is, can we imagine a different way? Can we imagine at least wow. whether we can do it or not is something else. But at the moment, it's a bit like we don't even have a, uh, you know, we can't even imagine it on paper at the moment. And it's a bit like, well, surely we can imagine a way uh, for things to get better on paper. <laughs> you know, Doing it is another thing, but I feel that we're failing even at that, imagining a different way forward. I love that you said that. I know Tim's going to try to get in here any moment, but I love that you said that because part of, um, part of two, well, two things. One is my friend Deanna Van Buren talks about, and she creates, she creates spaces, right? She's an architect. So she creates spaces that actually could be different, right? Like her, her whole thing. And she says all the time, like we're living in other, we're living in other people's imagination, right? They imagined we should have prisons. So we do. Right. And so this idea that we could actually live in our own imaginations and not imaginations from the past. So that gets me excited. But the other thing is, I feel like, and Tim and I talk about this, there is something cynical, arrogant, privileged about just being like, oh, we're too far gone. We're too far gone. And I'm just like, I feel like at least for my people, like we've been too far gone a million times. It's too, the world has ended a million times. And, and I'm not trying to make light of anything that's happening right now, but there's something that feels slightly self-indulgent about this narrative of like, we can't do anything. Oh my gosh. And I'm not trying to deny any of the realities that we're facing, 
but it has a quality of self-indulgence and cynicism that I just don't have a lot of room for. And I'm curious what you think of that. I mean, I totally agree. I think the question we have to ask whenever we're talking about whether these things can be fixed or made better or not is for whom? <clears throat> and I think that's kind of the key question that, that, and as you said, sort of, um, you know, if you're a family in, in Gaza or Israel at the moment, then, you know, uh, things, things have ended to some extent. Right. And it's a bit like, well, if you've lost your entire family, then it's a bit like, well, how much worse can it really get for you? So I think the question is for whom? Um, and I think that's the challenge that, um, to some extent, I feel that, you know, uh, us being, I'm going to include both of you here, but essentially being part of a, a fairly privileged elite. In some ways, we will could be okay, um, but I think that is an illusion as well. I think that's a complete illusion because you know once you start talking about losing, I don't know, five billion people or six billion people, it it becomes a lottery. Then then it's sort of like your privilege and your wealth and your is that really going to protect you? And I think there's an illusion that we think, um, and you know, this is what um, people say when they're, they've been in a, in an accident, right? It's like, it wouldn't, I can't believe it happened to me. Uh -huh. Um, and, 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 you know, you never, the shock of it happening to you is essentially, it's the surprise. It's like, it would, it happens to everyone else. It doesn't happen to me. So I kind of think we're living this, um, slight illusion that, you know, bad things are things that happen, you know, at, at least in, in terms of, catastrophes or societal catastrophes happen to in other societies in other places they don't happen to to kind of us basically and i and i guess you guys being in nova scotia um you had a bit of an experience of that oh yeah i mean like you know i said to you but like five you know within five months we had wildfires floods and hurricanes go through you know mm -hmm. i had over four feet of water in my basement and you know power gone for you know 36 hours and and um but I, I want to. I just. I want to. I want to understand why. I think. I think wealth and privilege has protected people uh, for very extended periods of times through massive crisis, and and uh, and I don't. I, I, why is it different this time? Why isn't the wealth and mm. privilege that so many people have access to, myself included, mm. going to shelter us during what's coming up now? I don't. What What's different? I mean, for both of you, I think I'm asking this. Like, what's different this time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the scale of what's happening is different. Um, and, um, the boundaries that have traditionally kind of protected us, if you like, uh, are irrelevant now. So again, it's sort of like, you know, being in Canada as a political entity does not protect you from wildfires. Um, it, there, right. there's, there's no boundary, right? It's not like, oh, the wildfires are across the boundary or the border, you know, in the US or somewhere else, but it's not going to happen here because of our, political ecology or whatever it is it's 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 across boundaries and i would just say that the unprecedented part of it is the scale right that if we're looking at these vast systems that are going to shift and change um and tip um then we haven't seen anything like that before we we, we weren't around when it happened to the dinosaurs no so it's i was just reading i was just reading this morning in the news that um you know the the sustained temperatures above 1.5 degrees C uh, 2029 is what they're predicting now. Right. Like, like it's not 20. That's like, I don't know. What are we now? That's five years, you know? Yeah. That we're there. What we wanted to avoid at the Paris Accords. We're there. 2029. Which is tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and Tim and I have been talking about this a lot, Saeed. So I think what you're pointing to, although we've used some different languages, what what's possibly different now and, and well, as well as like kind of <clears throat> the globalization of economies and weaponry and all of those different pieces, right, is like the actual earth is rising up. <laughs> you know, like we've been saying, like she's like kind of shake us off like fleas any moment, right? Like the, we, the actual entity that has given all of our life is in some ways is saying no more. Um, and so that has to, that has to impact everyone. Zaid, I'd love you to talk. Can you talk a little bit about your background? Because I'm aware as I look at this screen, we are uh, three different people who have kind of radically different backgrounds here. And I think people know pretty well, Tim and I's background, we've done whole podcasts on like, who are the people we come from? What is the class privilege? What is the race, you know, experience? And so it feels important that as we're in this conversation around how to evolve, that people know a little bit about you and understand that there are three of us in this conversation that would come from vastly different vantage points. So one of the things that I, I open my book with is, uh, a little bit of an exploration of my own kind of past and family history and um, a lot of things that I didn't know um, and so so started um, diving into. And again, when I say I didn't know, it's sort of, um, uh, they're right there, but just never paid attention to them. So, um, you know, so for example, um, my family come from a couple of different generations of refugees, so several generations of refugees. And I've never really paid attention to the events, if you like, that led them to, you know, fleeing their home or leaving their home. So one is 1971, so the creation of uh, Bangladesh. Um, so my family, both sides of my family were in Chittagong, which is now in Bangladesh, but was East Pakistan. And basically there was a civil war and um, they fled uh, the civil war. When I started looking into the civil war, one of the things that happened just before the civil war, so essentially kind of a couple of months before the civil war was the largest um, cyclone in history. Well, and the most destructive cyclone in history hit within a hundred miles of where they were and killed um, three to 400,000 people. Um, and so this is the, this is considered to be kind of the most destructive cyclone in history. And partly what prompted that civil war was, um, the response of the Pakistani government to the cyclone, which was, huh. to put it, to put it mildly, not good. Um, so, you know, there are stories of, um, officers, um, from the army in their dress whites playing cricket surrounded by fields full of dead people. Um, and essentially being completely unmoved by the plight of, you know, um, the, the Bengali population primarily who had suffered through the, the, the cyclone. And so what looks like from the outside a political event, um, actually is quite entwined with, um, you know, a natural disaster or a disaster, basically. Um, and then kind of going back to 1947, which is when partition happened, India, Pakistan was created, um, a, a million people died um, in communal riots. So again, my family was impacted. They moved from Calcutta to Chittagong uh, in 1947. But what I also then discovered was that the five years leading up to that were things like the Great Bengal Famine, where, you know, um, you know, millions of people died in a famine that, some people ascribe to British policies of extracting, um, extracting, uh, you know, rice and wheat from the subcontinent. Um, but again, there are all these kind of events, including another massive cyclone and so on. So all these events kind of entwine. Um, and again, you know, looking back, um, down the line, if you like, 
we just assume it's not going to happen to us, right? So you look back at these historical events and you kind of go, wow, there was, you know, this, the most destructive cyclone in history. And then you look back sort of, you know, 20 years and there's another two and three. Um, there's a famine, there's another famine, there's communal riots, there's, you know, all of these things in coming together to lead people to essentially become climate refugees or refugees. And it's a bit like they are climate refugees. Right. Um, and, um, but we don't obviously, we never saw it in those kind of terms. Um, um, so I read the other day, for example, that, you know, everybody alive today is either going to be, be a climate refugee or is going to be essentially welcoming or not welcoming climate refugees yeah. into their community. And there's no, you know, it will be one or the other, basically. Um, and if you think about it in those terms, it's sort of, it is coming. And, you know, as you said, it's sort of, it's coming relatively soon. Um, not, it's, it, you know, we're not talking about a hundred years from now or 200 years from now where it's sort of this distant future. It is within our lifetimes, hopefully, um, and the lifetimes of our kids, basically, that we will suddenly start seeing these really dramatic changes. So part of the question is, you know, if, 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 if we can imagine that those changes are coming, if we can look back to the past and, you know, I can look back at my family history and kind of go, okay, here's the impact that this has had. Um, now, what do we learn from it? And can we interrogate those events? Can we talk about them? Can we see what happened? Can we ask questions about them? And can we, can we imagine how we might respond to it and be better prepared to respond to it or at least try and even figure out how to shift the trajectory? So I guess my background is that, you know, from a, from a family background, I, I'm coming from several generations of people impacted by these events, as in some ways all of us are. Um, but seeing, um, seeing the events and actually talking to people about them. I mean, this is the other crazy thing. It's like, you know, talking to my dad about it. And he kind of goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I go, you remember mm. that? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, the roof blew off and there was just a ceiling fan left, you know, or, 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 or you know, and, and you think, wow, I, you know, I've been talking to you for 50 years and I've never had this conversation, right? right. I've never sat down with you and said, hey, do you remember this event that happened? And he kind of goes, yeah, I do remember that event, um, you know. And, it, and so, again, within our memories, um, past and future, there are things that we're not really thinking about or interrogating and saying, well, what happened? How did it happen? What could we do? And if it's coming down the line, then what do we do differently? So in some ways, that's my background. And professionally, what's happened is that I've worked on what we would call complex challenges over the last 20 years. Um, you know, I, I tongue in cheek split my career into two halves. The first half being the first 10 years where I assumed I was just going to go and learn from other people who are, you know, older, wiser, better paid than me, and I'm just going to learn from them, and they're going to teach me how to do this. And very quickly, I realized that is not the case. Um, and actually, <laughs> you know, you know shock to the system. Um, but, you know, one of these kind of uh, coming-of-age moments where you're a bit like, wait a minute, something's not quite right here. And my realization yeah. that actually we, we don't really know um, – uh, you know, as a society, if you like, um, how to tackle these things. And actually, um, it, our responses to these kind of challenges are very immature. Um, and so the second half of my career was spent figuring out, okay, how do we mature our responses? How, what does it mean to be effective at tackling these things? Um, and in some ways that, you know, the, my first book was covering the first 10 years of my career. And, and, uh, this book is really, um, reflecting on the on the last 10 years and what i've learned over the last kind of 10 years that image of playing cricket among the dead hey that stays with me you know um i mean I, I'm, I'm thinking about why it stays with me one it one it stays with me because like that was probably my ancestors you know, they were colonial administrators. They were involved in, you know, colonial police forces. 
They were involved in international intelligence during those periods. They were literally bred and educated to have that type of empathy removed from their leadership so they could effectively administer colonial territories. So I think that's one of the reasons it sticks to me. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, there we go, you know. And the stories like that, you know, would have been told very differently at the school I went to, you know. Like there's a fucking statue of Haig, you know, at the school, you know, like a man who's sent millions of people to their deaths. Um, unnecessarily often and and uh, so so i think there's that and then the other idea is that like and, and i don't know how this is that what we're doing at the moment like playing cricket surrounded mm, by the dead mm, you, you know wow. i mean it's just like we're just wow. not looking you know we're playing this super old traditional game you know that really only ended up in countries all over the world because they were colonized right by an empire you know and sport was one of the few ways you could fucking give it back. But so we're playing this game, this inherited traditional game from one particular perspective with a whole set of rules and etiquette that are rooted in one culture while we're surrounded by fields of dead people. I don't know, there was so much you said in that story that was powerful. And yet like uh, that, that image, that metaphor really stuck with me from it. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. I'm planning my wedding at this moment. And there are, if I, if I looked at my social on Sundays, I eat. And if I looked at social media, right. Congratulations. Thank you. Right. I would be on the floor sobbing about Mm -hmm. the babies under rubble. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. but I am instead thinking Mm -hmm. about a dress and not that I'm not, you know what I mean? So like, Mm -hmm. you're just like, so it just like really hit me when you Mm -hmm. said that, Tim. And the other thing that hit me was, um, Zaid, we interviewed, um, bio Akamalafe and he said, and here, and I like the way Stephen Jenkinson says this, the enemy of my ancestor is also my ancestor. And so I was just thinking about that, Tim, like, it's like easy to be like the, as a biracial person, right? It's a little bit harder for me sometimes to be like, those people did this and like as if, but, but actually there, it's all of our ancestors right now, right? Did those horrific things, were victimized by those horrific things. And now we're those people, like I'm that person playing cricket as yeah. there are bodies around. And that's just quite sobering. I, I find it sobering. And also, as I just go back to this original word, slightly hopeful. Because if I'm that ancestor and I'm playing cricket, then actually there's something I can do, right? It's not just those people over there who are so bad and irredeemable, right? Mm. It's me. There's actually some power. There's some power in your hands. I think you're right. I also just think that the thing about the image that really um, struck me was they were in there dress whites so they weren't yeah. just playing cricket you know they were in their perfectly pressed kind of dress whites um yeah um, and the contrast of those kind of dress whites with you know is just kind of mind-blowing but i think yeah. it does beg the question of you know where does that lack of empathy arise from so how how did that happen how did they become like that how do we not become like that um and you know um and as you said so sort of there is this tension of like well you know, you've got to live your life and you're going to, you're going to do what you need to do. Um, but at the same time, um, what does it mean to pay attention to what is happening in that field? Um, and what are the implications for us? And, and really, I think that's the point of the book, which is to say that, you know, surely there has to be something that we do differently as a result of, you know, seeing the bodies in the field or under the babies under the rubble. And it's sort of like, what is it that we do differently from what we have been doing over the last, you know, 10, 20, 
100 years, whatever it is. So there is there, there is this kind of paradigm, if you like, of business as usual, which is, hey, you know, we're doing enough, we're doing what we can, there isn't anything else we could do, there isn't anything differently we could do. And um, the argument I'm making is actually there is, um, but it requires us to depart from those habits and those practices, if you like, that are really, um, it, you know, they, they're really a part of our biology now. Um, it's sort of, you know, how do we sit? How do we walk? How do we stand? Um, and so it's sort of ingrained in our biology and, um, and we just do them. And it's a little bit like our brains are slightly disconnected from our, from our bodies. Um, and, you know, if our brains are kind of perceiving, uh, those feels of dead people and sort of, you know, there's a fight or flight response, then it's disconnected from our body and our bodies are just saying, don't worry, you're okay. And it's fine, basically. And, you know, you, you just keep doing what you're doing. So part of it is how do we, you know, how do we break out of that business as usual, that paradigm, if you like, where we are seeing these things, but we're, you know, in a very human way, in some ways, disassociated. We have to disassociate in order to, you know, stay sane. Um, and, you know, we, we just have to, otherwise, you know, and so, so partly I, I think the question for me is, you know, where does this lack of empathy as paradigm come from? Um, and one argument is it's just survival. It's like, you know, you cannot, you cannot actually compute what's happening around you without, um, you know, without massive PTSD and trauma and so on. And that's also the question I have about, you know, my family in terms of, you know, okay, so these terrible things happened and people talk about, you know, and I've now, you know, in researching the book, I've heard, you know, relatives and cousins talk about, you know, the crazy things that they've seen. Um, and, you know, and they, they saw them and they, they've obviously, those things obviously have had an impact, but it's very difficult to say what is the impact um, and what, again, would we do differently? And I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, when you get to that point where you're in the field, it's a little too late, right? Um, uh -huh. So how do we avoid ending up? How do we avoid ending up being the people who are essentially playing cricket in our dress whites in a field full of dead people? Like, how do we avoid that? And really, that's the question in some ways. I mean, obviously, I don't put it in those terms, but that is the question I'm kind of asking. So there's a, there's a question here, right? I mean, and, and, and this is like, I apologize for oversimplifying it, right? But, but there's something here about like, well, what's the right amount of empathy to have? What's the right amount of empathy to have? Like, how does this not become a tidal wave that completely overwhelms you to the point where you feel power? Like if you're to breathe in the multiple crises that we're facing right now, whether you think about them as social, environmental, economic, right? I mean, these, I mean, it, it, it's, so what, what's the right amount of empathy? What is, what is the, what is the antidote? And this goes back to what I think you and I were talking about. I think I can't remember. We were, I think we were talking about it before the pod, not on the pod, around like this, like that actually being in something local in your community can be an antidote to the global overwhelm, you know? So there's something in that. Um, and I think I'm, I'm pretty clear where the lack of empathy comes from within the ruling classes. Like I feel like there's a lot of kind of like research about that now. Uh, you know, a good body of knowledge about that right now. But I think what you're beginning to pull apart is um, how the em how the lack of empathy becomes possible just within all of us. What I would say is one of the things I've, I guess, come up with or found um, in writing the book is that, um, you know, we might be able to look back at, you know, colonialism or the ruling classes or whoever and basically um, – 
look at the historical narrative that gave rise to that kind of lack of empathy and what it is. Um, the question is whether, uh, the same process is alive and well today. Um, and my feeling is, uh, more than a feeling, my feeling and thought is that it, it is. Um, so I'll give you an example. Absolutely. Right? So I'll give you an Absolutely. example. Right? So people are talking about how AI is going to solve all of our problems, right? So it's going to essentially, um, tackle all of these complex challenges. And, um, and then on the other hand, there's a risk that, you know, AI eats our brains or whatever, however you want to call it, or the Terminator rises or whatever you want to call it. And, and the argument being made is that, um, the risk is worth taking because of the benefits. And that is exactly yeah. the paradigm, right? So the, the colonial paradigm right. is basically that, you know, unfortunately we've got to do terrible things, but it's all in, in the name of a higher good and a greater good. Um, and, 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 you know, so I, and I've, I, I, I've started calling this a necro paradigm, but it's a paradigm that primarily gives rise to suffering and death, but there's a very moral argument for doing it. And the moral argument a is a higher. Wait a minute. Just don't, don't zoom past sorry, that. That's sorry. pretty good. A necro paradigm. Yeah. So it's a paradigm that primarily will, will, result in result a lot of death, in suffering death and suffering but the argument for it is a moral argument the argument yes. for it is unfortunately unfortunately we've got to do it because of all the benefits that we're going to accrue from it and by the way we're going to lose a bunch of people which is you know and so there's you know there's this um famous interview on al jazeera and madeline albright where she, where the journalist asks her you know was the the death of you know a couple of hundred thousand iraqi children worth it and she thinks and she says Yes, it was worth it. And that is the necro paradigm where it's a bit like, okay, yes, we've got 400,000 kids who've been killed in bombings or whatever it is. And yeah, the price is worth paying basically. So is that paradigm alive and well? I would say absolutely it is alive and well. It's a lot. I mean, it's just, and I don't know when this podcast will air, but I just can see, um, as as the the as I don't even I don't even know I don't even know the words to use for what's happening in Israel and Gaza, but you can see this on both sides a justification of horror because we will get to something better. And um and and do you say necro paradigm? I think yeah. that's really important. And Zaid, I want to bring us back to because what you said earlier is we have to break these habits, and then you began to talk about the body. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like, and I'm, I'd love to hear you talk more about that because as you say necro paradigm, I think about how the body then seeks, if I were to make broad brushstrokes, right, the body seeks life. And so what can we, what can we learn from the body to break our habits, right? You know, we're going to be smart, right, obviously, but I'm curious what you might say about the body and how it might begin to interrupt the necro paradigm, well, see, the thing is, paradigms are built uh, from practices, uh, and those practices are embodied. Like we do them. So, you know, cooking is a practice, or you know, sport is a practice, or playing a musical instrument is a practice. But uh, practices don't exist without your body. Um, so, one way of thinking about these necro paradigms is that the way they come into existence is because we are doing things. Uh, we're doing things with our bodies. And one way of looking at what makes them a necro paradigm is that what we're actually practicing is malpractice. Um, mm. and you know, uh, uh, you know, an example would be, I don't know, a couple of hundred years ago, you would go to your hairdresser to get heart surgery. And now we would say, don't do that. <laughs> That's malpractice. <laughs> That's a 
bad idea, <laughs> right? And so we wouldn't kind of go, well, actually, you know, you've got an option of going to a hospital or going to a hairdresser to get heart surgery, and I'm going to pick the hairdresser. But that is kind of what we're we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that these necro paradigms are built, if you like, of malpractice, and those that that malpractice we are habituated to it, we're socialized into it, so we don't see it as going to the hairdresser to get heart surgery. We just see it as normal, and it's a bit like, oh well, so you know couple of hundred thousand people are going to die but oh well that's just the price of price we need to pay um that is an necro paradigm and it is essentially built out of practices that we are socialized and normalized into um and obviously we're not drawing a direct connection between our practices and what we do um and those deaths but essentially that is exactly what is happening and you know you can describe it happening and the, and the thing i think that's really you know difficult about it is that it's done in the name of the higher good mm-hmm. it is not it is not done by people kind of going you know i'm going to be e- an evil bastard and i don't really care right um even right. though those state those statements were probably a bit more common you know 100 or 200 years ago but n- now the argument is you know we're doing this to eliminate terrorism we're doing this to protect our families we're doing this to protect our, our sovereignty so the the higher argument being made for uh, these malpractices, if you like, is is a moral argument. And, you know, um, one of the people who's most influenced my thinking is a guy called Ivan Illich. And he has this phrase, which is the corruption of the best is the worst. And, and, and that's what's happening, right? So you're making a case for a higher good. Um, so you're saying this is for our collective benefit, but I'm going to do something that is really, really terrible. Um, and that really terrible thing is basically we're going to kill a lot of kids. Um, and we, and we've got to do it in order to protect something that is sacred. And, 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 you know, Illich's argument is that that is the definition of evil. Evil does not come about from people being evil and kind of going, going, kind of saying, I'm going to do terrible things to people because I'm a psychopath. Um, you know, societal evil, widespread evil arises from people basically doing horrible, terrible things in the name of a higher good. Um, and, and that is the definition of an echo paradigm, which is that, we're not doing it because, you know, we're psychopaths. We're doing it because we are protecting something that we think is important and sacred. You know, whether that is the purity of society or equality in society or freedom or whatever it is. Right. Or the empire or yeah. uh, bringing civilization to other parts of the world or the law firm we happen to be involved in. Absolutely, absolutely. Or the British or the institution, uh, the the, uh, the public service institution we happen to be working within or yeah. whatever is that yeah. higher good yeah. without any kind of diacrisis, without any critical thinking attached to it, it becomes very, very dangerous. It essentially becomes uh, an, an, an enabler of... Um, a feeling of superiority, which then justifies actions that harm other people. Yeah. And I would also just say that, you know, even the defense of empire is that the, the language it's, it's couched in or was couched in was, you know, we are a force for good in the world. Oh, we, yeah. We, no, it was a know, superior. Yeah. We know what's good for you. We know what's good for you and we're going to bring it to you and we're going to do you all a favor by colonizing you and, you know, civilizing you, right? And and again, what I'm saying is that that paradigm, that type of paradigm is alive and well. We obviously don't call it colonialism. We don't, it's not the defense of empire. It's the defense of something else, whether that's, you know, the global international order or peace or whatever it is. Um, but, but that, um, sequence of, of, you know, actions if you like is alive and well um and um for the most part unremarked on it's sort of like it just is what it is right 
There's a great. I don't if you don't if you know Roy Bailey is a British uh, folk singer. He died a few years ago, but there's there's got he's, he's written a whole body of incredible work. But there's one line it just reminds me of, and he goes, "It's like a." Those who say they know it are the ones who will impose it on you, I ain't afraid. You know, but it's like those who say they know it are the ones who will impose it on you. And so this dynamic is amoral, Saeed, right? This dynamic of I know better and let me, for your own good, impose it is amoral. Could be, I mean, could be for what we might say is good. You said the word peace, right? Could be for bad, uh, colonization, but actually, the dynamic, the practices, the behaviors are the same. It's just what is it and what's it in service of? We decide what is good enough, right? I think I think that this is what's kind of like blowing me open right now because it's explaining so much of what I'm seeing. People I agree with, people I think are good people, putting forward things that are actively hurting others, right? Do you know what I mean? In the name of good, and so there's something about this. These practices, this dynamic, this necro paradigm that is as essential to how all of us are moving through the world, right? Whether we're good, bad, or indifferent, as any, it's just, I don't even, I don't know if there's a question there, but it's just kind of like blowing me open to think about this is why we have to imagine something different because we're all caught up in it. Like 20 years ago, we would have said we're all caught up in the mechanistic paradigm, right? That we need to do something around living systems and being more like nature that, but the ne- mechanistic paradigm was undergirding everything we did. And now I hear you saying truly whether you, and maybe you're not saying this, but the conclusion I'm coming to is whether, um, whether we think we're on, we're the good guys or not. We're operating in this necro paradigm that says for my, for the good of all, anything is worth doing. Well, what, I mean, what I would say is that I actually think, uh, you're right about that mechanistic paradigm, but I actually think it's the same paradigm. I think that is the paradigm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and what's, ha- what's happened and, and, uh, you know, the core of that paradigm is basically saying we humans are somehow different from nature and the natural world um and we are we are exceptions basically and yeah, we yeah. can essentially oper- operate as if we are exceptions to the natural world what i think has happened over the last kind of 20 years is that intellectually um you know broadly there's been a realization that yes no we're not separate we're part of the natural world but the practices are still the same so the practices are still mechanistic practices and practices based on the idea that, you know, the universe is a clock um, or the world is a clock and we can operate on it as if it's a machine. Um, and the practices that we are that are prevalent and ubiquitous are those mechanistic practices. And, you know, I can give you uh, a, uh, an example, which I think is kind of blew, blows my mind. But, um, you know, I, I think that those that is the crux of it. It is this mechanistic paradigm that we are still continuing to practice, if you like. Our, our malpractice is based on this idea that we are somehow different and separate. And these problems or challenges are all technical problems that, you know, we can optimize our way out of. And it's sort of like, we are still, we are still doing that. And it's yeah. sort of like, that is the malpractice, basically. Right. But the, the, the great thing is, it's, uh, it's not hard to fix, right? That's what the title. <laughs> 
Just saying, that's what the title says. That's what the title says. So let's move on to like the second half of the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah why yeah. it's not hard to fix. Why is it not hard to fix? What are you, what well, are you pointing at? Well, let me, let me, before we go there, let me just give you one example. And I'm, I'm going to then use this example uh, to answer okay. your question. So Super. if we look at the climate crisis, um, uh, so that I, I, I said to Tim that I'm going to Wales uh, in a couple of hours to give a talk. Um, so the, the talk is basically called The Secret History of the Climate Crisis. Um, and, the, and the argument I'm basically making is that we have um, essentially failed strategically to tackle the problem, but we've tactically had lots of successes. Mm-hmm. So every time we have a success on the ground, we kind of go, oh, look how great we're doing. Um, and it's a bit like, you know, you're, you're, you're losing the war, but you're winning these little kind of skirmishes and battles on the ground. Um, and so basically, um, what I've done is I've looked at the timeline of, of the climate crisis. If you look at the last 30 years, the UNFCCC was launched, um, at 1992 at the Rio summit, ratified two years later. 50% of all human emissions have happened since we launched the UNFCCC. So since we said there is a problem, with greenhouse gas emissions, we have emitted 50% of all emissions in human history since we recognized Holy the problem. Crap. And it's like, wait, surely you would think this, you would think since we recognized the problem, the whole world came together and said, we're going to do something about this. You know, we would have gotten better and maybe we wouldn't have solved the problem, but it wouldn't actually be getting worse, but it's getting worse. Um, and one of the reasons it's getting worse is that, um, that the UNFCCC was modeled on something called the Montreal Protocol, which was around reducing um, CFCs, basically. So the hole in the ozone layer. And so what people realized is the hole in the ozone layer is caused by this class of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, that come out of our fridges and, you know, a couple of, you know, fairly narrow band of kind of things. And um, the Montreal Protocol was set up and it essentially eliminated CFCs and solved the problem within a couple of years so what happened with um greenhouse gases is people went oh well that worked so let us let's use that approach now the thing is um the problem of cfcs is a technical challenge a technical problem right it's a very technical narrow class of chemicals that it's very easy to limit as in you and i we've not even noticed that our fridges have changed right it doesn't affect us um but the climate challenge, which is greenhouse gas emissions, which is a global energy transition, impacts everybody. It is not a technical mm. problem. Um, so mm. the mechanistic approach of kind of treating something as a technical problem was applied to um, the climate. Uh, it is not a technical challenge. There are obviously elements of it that are a technical challenge, but it is a complex challenge, not a technical problem. Um, and what we did is we handed that problem over to a bunch of experts and we said, solve the problem. As if it was a technical problem, like the, like, you know, CFCs and the ozone layer. And we made it, we made a mistake basically. And, and that mistake is the practice. Mm. And it's, it's alive and well. You can go to the COP in November and you will see that practice alive and well, thousands of people. And, you know, again, strategically, we're losing it. We're losing it. We're heading towards, you know, three degrees, 3.5 degrees. Um, and then what will happen after the COP is people will declare tactical successes they'll be like mm-hmm. you know well this happened and that happened mm-hmm. and it was great and you know we made progress and at least we made progress and it's like the practice is right there in our faces and it is a mechanistic practice uh and we are treating the planet as if it's a clock or a machine that we can essentially dissolve and and it is causing the climate crisis 
So that that that's an example of what what I would say is that that paradigm, and you know, and people are, and people are doubling down on that paradigm, right? Of so it's sort of like, yeah, there's going to be wildfires <laughs> in Nova Scotia, and you know, yes, part of our food system might collapse. Obviously, we don't want these things; these are unintended consequences. But it's like let's double down on the practice. So let's double down on the malpractice in the hope that actually this shifts. But actually, what you're going to do is lose more and more people. But the moral case is made, and I would say it's actually not a moral; it's a very moral argument right and and that that's what characterizes all of these paradigms is the argument that is actually being put to you is a moral argument right like you are going to do or we're going to ask you to do what you're going to do because we're making a moral case for action and that moral case means you're obliged to undertake this malpractice which is like you're obliged to support the UNFCCC in that process because we've been doing it for 30 years and now we can't just write it off because what's going to happen then right um so again it's sort of like a moral argument for essentially unintended consequences like yeah i mean terrible things are happening but we're trying to avoid them um but if we just double down you know there's a hope that we won't and and the thing is it's like it's a bit like the evidence tells us it's not working right but our bodies are doing something else which is like you're going to turn up at this conference you know you're going right. to get your badge you know you're going to you're going to go and do your work and you're basically going to be like at least I'm what I'm doing something and it's Look, a I'm bit playing like, cricket i'm yeah. playing cricket yeah. i'm playing cricket for everybody i'm playing cricket to help yeah. And I've, you know, I've pressed my whites and I've turned up as my best self and I'm, right. playing, I'm you know, and I'm, and I'm playing the like game. I'm playing the game. I'm doing my best to play the game here. Like, and I'm getting good at it. And, yeah. you know. Yeah. Just give us another 30 years. And it's sort right. of like, yeah. well, we yeah. don't have it. Now, now we're looking at the shrinking window. Um, and so coming back to why it isn't that hard is that it, it, it is not an external event that is happening to us. Um, you know, so when we look at cyclones or we look at, you know, I don't know, Katrina, what happened, we tend to think about these things as external events and it's been like something that happened to us and we have to react to them, but they're not external events, right? So even if you look at something like Katrina, you know, one argument was it was a once in a millennium hurricane or once in a century kind of hurricane or, or storm. And it's like, well, actually, it was a once in a millennium hurricane and it was a hundred years of malpractice in terms of land use. Mm-hmm. And that hundred years of that hundred years of sort of malpractice in terms of you know again the crux of it is that we are not part of the natural world we can insulate ourselves we can be different we can apply sort of mechanistic practices if you like to the natural world and segregate ourselves from it failed that's what failed and basically mm. so you can read a history of Katrina which is a history of what happened over the last hundred years in New Orleans in terms of you know land use. Um, and how these decisions that were made one by one, mostly invisible, led to this massive catastrophic um, failure um, and, and the flood. So, again, it's like the reason it's not that hard is because it's not actually external. So how do we begin to imagine something different? So, I mean, in, in, in the book, um, the way I've structured it is there are... Um, three sections, one on culture, one on economics, and one on politics. Um, and what I'm trying to do is basically um, help us imagine how those things, which feel very immovable and difficult, and, you know, it's like, well, how is that going to happen? Um, how do we kind of shift those um, those three? Um, but what, what would a, you know, what would a culture look like that we want to live in? You know, what would an economic system that is actually supportive of uh, a life and the planet look like um 
And, and again, what would a political system that actually works for us look like? Um, and my argument is that, you know, the, the, the current paradigms around culture and around economics and politics don't really work for us. Um, and they're not working for us. And everyone kind of knows this to some extent, but the question is, well, what, what is it that we do? And it's sort of a bit like, well, they're just too big uh, for us to tackle and so on. So I think the first step is, you know, can we imagine something different? Um, and, and the, the crux of it is, you know, if we can imagine something different, what are the implications for how we behave and how do we act differently um, with the view in mind that actually there's somewhere we want to get to. Um, it's different from kind of where we are. So how do we, how do we, if you like, pedal our way to that, to that, you know, future, if you like. Um, and really the, the, the argument in the book is that, you know, that there's a, there's a process, there's a strategy, if you like, or a strategic approach that we can follow to help us navigate towards a better place, so to speak. Um, and that approach is something that we've been testing and doing for 20 years. I think all of us have been a part of doing it, but it's putting words and names on it and basically saying, so, you know, when you sit in a circle and have a conversation, how is that practice different to sitting in a boardroom and having a conversation? But it, it, it fundamentally comes down to practice. Um, and what is our practice? So the right. final section of the book is articulating a practice and articulating a practice from having done it, not from having, you know, theoretically imagined some theory of a, of, you yeah. know, an approach. It's like, no, we've been doing these things and the fact that we've been doing them and we know how to do them is what makes it not that difficult. Um, and it, it obviously it is difficult, but it is a matter of kind of will, right? It's a bit like, you know, how do we give up smoking or how do we give up eating, you know, fatty foods or how do we give up a bad habit basically? And it, it, that's the crux of it, which is that we have a bunch of bad habits. We don't see them as bad habits. The first step is recognizing them as a bad habit. These are, these, these are forms of malpractice. You know, what has happened with the COP and the UNFCCC is a form of malpractice. We don't see it as malpractice. And there's massive rationalizations and justifications and moral arguments being made for why it must be so. And it doesn't have to be that way you know, we can change it because it is intrinsic to us. It's us that's actually doing the work. It's not, it's not like, you know, we're watching a meteor or a, an asteroid right. arriving from space. And, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, miles away and there's nothing we can do. And we're just watching it. It's going to hit. That is not the situation we're in. No, because it's, inter but, 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 but it being internal to us doesn't make it easy. It puts it within our realm of influence. It puts it within our realm of control. But my experience of internal work is like, that's the hardest fucking shit, you know? Like, like that's like, that's the, that's like you get in the quest. That's when you get sent to the fucking underworld. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And you yeah, got to spend like a significant amount of time in the underworld. And like, it's never fun no, in, no. The, in the underworld part of the quest. No. You know what I mean? Like you come out the other side, you know, well-equipped, sharper. You can take some really cool weapons with you, but like you're going to the underworld, dude. Yeah, you know, and so I and 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 like and it's in that space that um, you know, our beliefs about who we are and how we turn up get reforged. Like in the heat of that kind of like internal engagement with your underworld, like exploring your own ancestry, just like we opened today, I think is part of that kind of underworld journey. And so um, and so. It, it, but I, what I like about it is that it puts it into our realm of choice. An agency. An agency. Love it. Agency is a lovely word for it. Yeah. It puts it into our, our, our realm of agency. So really the, the shift, the shift I would say, and you know, the, uh, uh, maybe you should put the word easy in quotes. The shift is 
these are things that are happening to us that we can do nothing about. It's impossible. It's too late. It's over to actually, we have a degree of agency and actually it's yeah. within, our, within our hands to shift. Yes. And obviously yes. the, the, you know, the journey of actually making those internal shifts is incredibly difficult, right? Um, as, as anyone who's attempted to change themselves kind of knows, but yeah. the task is to change ourselves. Um, as opposed to kind of seeing these massive intractable systemic, you know, problems that are way out there that are too big for us and we have no agency. So what I would say is the shift is from saying it's impossible to saying it's possible. Um, and no, it's not easy, but the impossible is impossible, right? It's like in contrast, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. easy. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Relatively. Relatively. And, and, and <laughs> yeah. of course, like. That's interesting, Zaid. I like that. You know, and it, what it yeah. points to, I think, and, and what you're pointing to is what is the nature of the work, basically. Mm. Well, and it just occurs to me, Zaid, as you, as you just said it, and we work with people every day who want it and, and want to shift their practice. So it's not, it's not even like, it's the easy word. It's like actually not that far away. We've been working with those people for the last 20 years. Who want to do, like yeah. who actually just need yeah. the practices to do something different? I was just telling Tim I was with a group of people in who are working in agroforestry. So this is mm-hmm. like working with trees and what they give um, to us and what we can give to them. And I just said to him, like these folks, like they were like the slow, inexorable, gentle change of the world. Like they, like they no drama not interested in scaling up particularly, right? Just like, let me just be with the trees and in a reciprocal relationship. And then we brought 30 of them together. And so like, okay, so now we're in relationship. And what is your practice with the trees? And I was just struck over three days. I'm like, oh my gosh, you just like, I was so moved by their work and so moved by how they just seemed to not be, you can't like be outside of the, the necro paradigm, but just like they were just taking a step to the right, right? Like they just weren't quite buying it. They just were going to do their thing no matter what was happening out there. And so like we all can point to, I mean, you know, the three of us, but I think many people listening to this can actually point to the people who are wanting these new practices, practicing these new practices every day. So it's not... It, the problems feel big when they're out there, but when we pause and think about who we're side by side with, who we're locking arms with, it's actually mm-hmm. not that far away. Yeah, and I would say that there's there's one other reason why it's easy, and I would use the word easy in this case is that um uh so so there's this um this concept of mimicry um that actually mm-hmm. and 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 um. Uh, there's a, a French philosopher and he, he came up with idea called mimetic design. Basically what he said was that if somebody else is doing something, um, you want to do it. <laughs> so if somebody else is doing something and that doing something gives some, confers some status. Um, it doesn't matter what they're doing. you p- other mm. people will want to do it. And, and we as human beings, what we tend to do is we tend to mimic other people's behaviors mm-hmm. for very kind of, uh, basic reasons. So it's not a rational thing, but it's a bit like, Hey, they're doing that and it seems to be cool. I'm going to do it as well. Or like, why aren't we doing it? And so in some ways, what we're talking about doing is valorizing, if you like, a set of practices over a set of malpractices. And if you valorize those practices and there is some status to be gained from doing those practices, uh, people will copy them. 
and they will copy them for entirely <laughs> bizarre reasons or, un, you know, the, the mechanism of kind of copying and why people copy, we can argue about, but it's like people will just copy it, right? Um, so the, the work in some ways is, is doing that work and valorizing that work to the point where people kind of go, well, that's kind of cool. I want to do that. Um, and it's that simple at one level, which is that if sufficient numbers of people are doing something that is deemed to be cool, that's deemed to have status, that's deemed to be, you know, rewarded in society, then people will copy it. Mm-hmm. And, and that in some ways, that's what we want them to do. It's like you can copy it and get better at it, but the bottom line is stop doing these other things that are a form of malpractice and do these other things, you know. And so the group you're talking about, is exactly that's exactly the point which is that you are actually embodying a set of practices and now now the question becomes you know how do we valorize that how do we give that value how do we give that status right and other people will be like oh, i want to do that why aren't we doing that you know um and they will start start copying it and that's why i don't think it's that complicated i think that you know to some extent we know what to do you know we know what the practices are that are healthy we know what a mechanistic paradigm looks like you know intellectually i don't think it has a lot of um validity i think intellectually it's bankrupt right the idea mm-hmm. that we live in a mechanistic world and that we're separate from nature is intellectually bankrupt um right it's the it's the practices and the malpractices that continue to it's persist great. and so in some ways what we have to do is we have to valorize the practices and essentially you know you know i'm, I'm not saying kind of castigate people but essentially we have to stop celebrating malpractice mm-hmm mm-hmm We're coming near the end of the pod, you two. Mm-hmm. Is, 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 there, is there anything else from within the book that you want to highlight that kind of feeds into this conversation, Zaid? Yeah. You know, we we look back at, uh, if you like, uh, uh, traditional necro paradigms like, you know, colonialism or, you know, imperialism, and we think they're far away from us. Um, and we think that we've transcended them and we're kind of beyond them. And... Um, I don't think we are. I think that the, the same dynamics and the same logic are prevalent. Um, and, uh, in some ways, the reason I think they arise is because there is a desire everyone has to do good and to improve things and do better. And the question is, you know, what are the practices we reach for in doing that? And unfortunately, the practices we reach for the ones we're most familiar with, right? Um, so we reach for these mechanistic practices. We reach for these technical paradigms, um, that we think will solve our problems. And I just think that what's required is, um, being able to demonstrate that actually there is a different way and that different way is actually not technically complicated. It's not that we need to do research into, you know, discovering a new technology or a new vaccine or whatever it is, but it's actually human behavior. And that behavior is not that difficult. It's more that do we have the courage to depart from what it is we're familiar with. And I think that's what keeps us locked into the current paradigm, which is that it's familiar to us. We're say you know, we're comfortable doing it. We get paid to do it in some cases. Um, and so how do we actually break those habits, if you like? Um, and, and to some extent, it's sort of like, um, you know, the courage to be a traveler. It's the courage to leave home, right? And we've mm-hmm. all, you know, we talked about this, Tim, earlier, right? It's like, you know, we've all, particularly kind of in our younger years, we've all done it. We've all kind of gone out on the road, basically, and we've been uncomfortable and difficult. And we know what it feels like, right? Um, but it's sort of like that. What is that emotional journey that we need to take? of leaving, if you like, the comfortable and the familiar um, and doing things that may not be as comfortable familiar. And and when I say leaving, obviously, it doesn't mean leaving home. It means that, you know, you're home and you're doing things differently from how you have done them in the past. But 
can we imagine what that what that looks like for our you know for our cultures our political systems our economic systems can we see it and can we then basically say okay we need to tack a different direction um and move in a different direction and we've got to you know we've got to find the courage to do that and what i've found over the last kind of couple of years of doing this particularly work in the climate space is that primarily people are doing what they're familiar with um whether it works or not is utterly irrelevant it's like there is no connection between strategic success and what people are doing there's absolutely none and you know if you had said this to me 10 or 15 years ago i said that's not possible like clearly obviously people are doing things because it's having an impact or it's working or not and now i would just have to say that actually what people are doing is entirely disconnected from the results results basically and from from outputs and on what they're actually producing um so it, it is a bit like you know we spent 30 years polluting basically and we've increased our pollutions you know in 30 years more than we have in the entire history of humanity well how the hell did that happen well it happened because you know we did what we were comfortable doing and we stuck with what was familiar to us rather than um saying pause so i think that the the thing i would just leave with is that you know it, which is a question mark for me is that you know what does it take for us to do things differently and 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 you know and and in tim in your language it's like it is going into that kind of underworld it is going into that very very difficult place that we don't want to go to understandably we don't want to go to it and it's like who in their right mind would want to go there but that's the work right and it's sort of like we've got to reframe to some extent what is the nature of the work the nature of the work is not out there it's not like, you know, there's some technical process that we've got to crack out there and a bunch of scientists are going to crack it. And then we're going to be like, great, we've discovered free energy. We're now okay. That is not going to be, you know, that is not going to work. And that is, that's the delusion basically that the, these problems are kind of out there. They're technical in nature. We've got to get the experts to solve them and the nature of the work. And, you know, it's like, could the nature of the work be more dramatically different if you basically start talking about that inner work and that underworld where you need to go versus, uh, these technical solutions. I mean, they could not be more diametrically opposed to each other in the nature of the work that you need to do. And so I think that's the shift, which is how do we invite people into that work? Um, how do we, how do we, you know, share visions of how things could be different? They are possible. Uh, we have agency to do that. It is up to us. It is not up to a bunch of scientists to crack the problem basically out there somewhere. Um, so that's what I would kind of leave with that. I think that it's both easy and hard um and it's easy because to some extent we have agency if enough people do it other people will copy it um and replicate it well this has been an amazing conversation i'm so i feel like uh i, love, I mean yeah, there's, i loved this part i know this was awesome. i feel very excited i feel like i want to go tell my partner about this i feel like i want to bring it um into some work i'm doing tomorrow i just thank you Zaid. this was just a really provocative and evocative conversation for me and i'm just really grateful thank you for writing this book about how easy it is going to be to change the world i'm very excited very excited. When when it when is it out? When's it out? I don't. You know what? I've got like a manuscript under my laptop here that I'm taking on the train, so I'm still working on it. So I don't know when it's out, but I will let you guys know as soon as I know. Yeah, Please do it. Do. We'll do, we'll do, let's do it. Let's do another one when it comes out to support the promotion of it. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. We'd love to do that. And uh, Zaid, if people want to find out more about you or your work, or I think very particularly uh, your view. Mm -hmm. you, you know the view you hold of the work in the world how do they find you what's the place they go to i mean you know what i have this is a question i have as well I, i'm not totally sure what the right channels are these days um but you know i'm online i'm on instagram i'm not that hard to find um yeah so I, i'm kind of around and i would also i'm happy to speak to people um 
but yeah, I'm around. I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> like you can find me online. So just like, like at Zaid Hassan. Is that where? Yeah, basically. Search, search, search him up, folks. He's around. Yeah. Not hard to find. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank yeah. you. Thank Pleasure. you so much, Zaid. This is amazing. <laughs>